0: The following is a podcast from Live it, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livitmke.org. And from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20, uh, we're going to look at verses 20 through 28. In your, in your service folder there, it says 17 to 28. I think I'm just going to start right at verse 20, uh, as you can find here on the screen. Here we read, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked the favor of Jesus. What is it that you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Well, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them, the woman and, and John, James and John. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they confidently answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the other ten, that's the other ten disciples, when they heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. and to give us life as a ransom for many. This is God's Word. Um, If you haven't figured out one of my my routine sermon techniques, is that I'll take a given topic, whether, you know, a a topic that's common in the world or a topic that's pertinent to every human life, and I'll take that and what I'll do is I'll try to compare what I would call conventional wisdom, worldly wisdom, uh, intuitive wisdom, instinct and say, what does everything, what do the leading experts in the world have to say about this given topic? And then I'll contrast that with what does the Bible actually have to say about that? And then I'll just kind of sort of let you choose which, which is better, which sounds righter, which sounds purer. Uh, if everybody in the world believed and practiced one or the other, which would make the world a better place? Okay? See, which is, which is more beautiful wisdom? I'm going to do the same thing tonight, but we're going to do it with uh, this simple question, the question of, what does greatness really look like? Okay? Uh, if you are to say what is greatness according to conventional worldly wisdom, I think you would probably say it has something to do with accomplishment, performance-driven kind of stuff. Making a name for yourself kind of stuff. So, for instance, uh, how do you know whether or not you're a great CEO according to conventional wisdom in the, in the world's eyes? Uh, Well, what's the bottom line profit for your company? Uh, How many people do you have working under you? How many employees do you have? All of that would contribute. Uh, How do you know if you're a great musician? How many people are buying your albums? How many people are coming to your performances and concerts? How do you know if you're popular? How many social media followers do you have? How many likes do you get? You know, and so basically you're just, you're adding up numbers and, by the way, the things in life that you count, those are the things that are most important to you, whether it's pounds or grades or dollars, whatever you're counting in life the most, that's what's the most important to you. Uh, Whatever you're counting is probably the thing by which you're trying to say, have I made it? Am I great yet? Or what do I need in order to get great? How many trophies? How many people serving me? How many whatever? And then you compare that to world, to uh, biblical wisdom. And the Bible says something very different. The Bible seems to be suggesting that uh, greatness in God's kingdom is upside down and therefore right side up. Greatness in God's kingdom comes not by going high but by voluntarily laying yourself down and going low. Greatness in God's kingdom comes not by taking things and acquiring things in and pushing people under you. Greatness comes in pouring yourself out. Uh, greatness in God's kingdom is, is not about being served but it's actually about serving others. Now, it's, it's, it's not exactly just the opposite. I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. It isn't like uh, the difference between winning and losing. So, uh, winning in the world's eyes is uh, the opposite. The winning in God's kingdom would be losing in this lifetime. Just if you feel like or if you look like you're losing in this world, that doesn't necessarily mean you're advancing God's kingdom, okay? It's not just the simple uh, as being the opposite. It's defining things like winning and losing in entirely different terms, Okay? And I think it's demonstrating a willingness to lose in earthly terms in order to uh, grow and advance God's kingdom. Okay? The topic tonight is greatness. That's what we're ruminating on. And we're going to look at a story. Uh, the disciples have these debates, oftentimes the Gospels about which of them, these squabbles, which of them is the greatest? Which of them does Jesus like the most? Which of them will be the greatest in the kingdom ultimately? And they're always thinking about it in worldly terms and so Jesus has to bring them not back down to earth but back into heaven, okay? Um, So here's the story in our text. Uh, In our lesson today, what we have is a reference to the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which is a very confusing way of saying something. The mother of the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee are James and John in the Gospels. And the mother of, Zeb, of Zebedee's sons, we know from the other parts of the Gospels, is a woman named Salome. James and John are two of the twelve disciples. The twelve disciples, uh, probably goes without saying, but the twelve disciples are the people that Jesus, in his uh, more finite, confined human state, is regularly pouring himself into in life. Jesus doesn't just spend equal amounts of time with everybody doing everything. He spends a lot of time and energy pouring himself into 12 specific individuals, his disciples, okay? Uh, He's got a close inner circle amongst those disciples who are kind of his closest personal friends and that inner circle is Peter, James, and John. Two of those guys, James and John, are brothers. Uh, We actually uh, find out that Jesus gives them a nickname in the Gospels. It's in Greek, it's the the word boanerges, but it's loosely translated to kind of the nickname of the Sons of Thunder. Which, by the way, how cool is that? Like, that's like a professional wrestling tag team nickname. The Sons of Thunder is just, incidentally, by the way, my brother and I were named after these guys. So I have an older brother named John. No one's ever called us the Sons of Thunder. (laughs) Not cool enough. We were uh, sons of partially cloudy skies at best. Never (laughs) Sons of Thunder. But why were they given the name Sons of Thunder, that nickname? Probably, uh, a lot of commentators will say, perhaps because uh, they had this particularly fiery and assertive sort of spirit about them. If that's the case, they very well might have gotten it from mom. Uh, Because mom, Salome in our text, has a very fiery, assertive uh, uh, kind of disposition. She comes up to Jesus and she says, "Mm, I need you to do me a favor. When you usher in your kingdom, I want my sons to be sitting on your right hand and your left, okay? Now, Jesus initially responds by saying, uh, you don't really know what you're talking about. And I'll get to that and explain that in a second. But the other disciples find out about this and we're told they are indignant. James and John got their mom to go and whine to Jesus and kick their battles and, uh, and now he's asking for a favor. And here's the thing, all of them had this attitude. I can just imagine Peter Man, Peter is like, he, Peter's the first grader that has to be in the front of the line all the time. Peter's the, the friend that whenever you drive someplace, he's always got to ride shotgun to Jesus, right? And so Peter's got to be kicking himself and saying, why didn't I think of that question? Why shouldn't I sit at God's right hand in heaven? We're told they're furious with James and John and Salome about all of this. So what does Jesus have to do? He's got to take them and sit them down and teach them a lesson about what greatness in his kingdom actually looks like. He says, you don't know what you're talking about. He says, greatness in my kingdom is actually going to amount to, what he gets to is, his cross. Um, In other words, for Jesus, the the culmination of all of history and the reason we will sing Jesus' praises for all of history, uh, the reason he has the greatest glory uh, eternally in this lifetime is going to mean imminent death, pain and suffering. Uh, So, in other words, the theme here in the whole lesson is the counterintuitive nature of the cross of Jesus. Why do we gather tonight to sing his praises? Because of his cross. Uh, Why will you and I one day reign forever on high with him, governing even the angels according to the Bible? Because of his cross. Why will we forever sing the praises? Because of his cross. But for the cross to bring greatness eventually It means sacrifice in this lifetime. For the cross to bring greatness eternally, it means probably some pain and suffering and humble service right here and right now. And the disciples didn't get that. And by and large, a lot of us Christians really forget that pretty easily too. Greatness in God's kingdom eternally oftentimes is going to look like sacrifice, suffering, and very humble service here on earth. Now, I have three ways that I want to uh, flesh out that point here tonight. We're going to look at three ways that the cross creates humility and greatness. Uh, Humility here and now, greatness eternally, okay? Uh, Number one, the cross of Jesus Christ creates a humility of intellect. Um, In the verses that lead up to our text, we're actually told that Jesus had just got done, uh, gotten done telling his disciples and this is now the third time he's told them, very soon I'm going to have to go into Jerusalem and I will be mocked and tortured and suffer and, and be crucified uh, and, and I will rise. But this is the third time. In fact, you can see it very clearly in Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, it's Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. He tells them the exact same thing three times in a row. And yet, Salome and the sons, James and John, have uh, the audacity and the nerve to come to him immediately and say, hey, I have a favor for you to tell me, or for, for you to give me. I need something, uh, I have something I need you to do for me. Specifically in Mark's gospel, what it says is, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is like if somebody tells you, uh, your friend tells you, I have cancer, and you say, oh, that's rough. Can you come over and help me move out of my apartment this weekend? totally insensitive, totally just completely missing the the severity and the seriousness of this whole thing. And yet Jesus has just done this three times in a row and you say, how dense, you know, how insensitive can they possibly be? So Jesus is, basically, he goes on to say, uh, when she says, grant that one of uh, my sons can sit on your right hand and, and one on your left, Jesus, he doesn't blow up at him, he's patient with him and he says, you don't know what you're talking about. Now here's why he says that, because there's sort of a double entendre in that. Uh, When Jesus ushers in his kingdom, we said earlier, when does that first uh, become clear? It's while he's on his cross. And you notice, when Jesus is on his cross, he actually has somebody sitting at his right and at his left. It's criminals who are getting crucified along with him. So, when Jesus says, you guys don't really know what you're talking about, when you're asking to sit on the right hand and the left in my kingdom, what he's saying is, all right, you want to you wanna deal with what I'm going to deal with? The glory that I'm, that means you're going to have to pull yourself up to your own cross and drink from the cup of God's wrath that I'm doing and, and deal with all of that. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, here's where I want to bring it into humility. Humility. This is the third time we said Jesus is talking about his suffering and death to his friends and yet it's the third time they've completely missed the point. And I think we have a tendency to look back at the disciples and the way they act in the Gospels and look at them almost as like uh, comedic foils to Jesus and they just, don't they sometimes seem kind of like just stumbling idiots? I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to think. I don't think the Holy Spirit is trying to condition in us some self-righteousness against the stupid disciples. I think what the Holy Spirit is doing it in recording it this way is he's saying, look, if these guys sat at Jesus' feet every day directly for three years and at the end of his ministry they're still missing something so obvious, what do you think you're missing right now? I don't think I know one Christian who doesn't to some extent sort of think, I think I got it figured out. The more you know the cross, the more you realize how much you have to learn about the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is a profound mystery and uh, if Jesus' own disciples can miss his teaching here so obviously and so embarrassingly, what perhaps do I think I I, I am possibly missing right now? As a pastor, I'll tell you, the person that absolutely scares me the, the most, without question, is the person that assumes that they've entirely figured out the cross. Because the cross is such a profound mystery, it allows for absolutely no smugness, no, uh, no judgment, no arrogance, no intellectual pride or spiritual superiority towards anybody. anybody, don't be proud, not because Jesus just says don't be proud, although that's one reason not to do it. Don't be proud because you and I logically have absolutely no reason to do so if we're just sinners saved by grace and the cross is an infinitely deep thing that we should forever be learning from. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to think that you're uh, spiritually better than somebody else. What does this look like in your own life? Intellectual humility. What does it look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like an insatiable appetite to continue to learn more from the gospel. Uh, any, anybody who isn't in a regular basis, not just not doing devotion, not doing Bible study because God says we have to do it, but because there's a certain level of, oh my goodness, God is trying to tell me something and I still have so much to learn. The Bible tells us the angels long to look into the gospel and they've been looking at it since they were first created and they're much smarter than we are. If I'm not longing to look into this, the problem is not because the gospel is boring. The problem is that I'm missing the mystery and the profundity that is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's an insatiable thirst to learn more. Uh, It's a complete lack of condescension towards others. It's an enormous level of patience before criticizing anybody else. Uh, it's, It's no spiritual superiority complex. It's a beautiful, intellectual, winsome humility. Okay, that's point one. Point two. If you see the cross of Jesus Christ, clearly it leads to a humility of power. Um, In verses 25 and 26, which I have for you on the screen there, it says, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus' point is addressing the way most people try to assert influence and authority over everyone else in society. Um, They try to gain control and power and lord it over one another. See, he makes reference to the Gentiles there. And usually, kind of the simplest definition of Gentiles is they're the non-Jews in the Bible, right? But the way he's using it here is actually a little bit different. Uh, The the Hebrew word is the word goyim, which refers to the, the other nations, The other peoples, the people of the world. So when Jesus makes some statements when he talks about just the Gentiles in general, what he's really saying is this is the way the world generally operates. How does the world generally operate? They lord their power. Okay? So the world, generally speaking, thinks if we can just get enough money and we can just get the right connections and we can just get the right degrees, then I can get my way then I can have authority, then I can influence. But to Jesus' disciples, he says, eh, not so with you. That is not the way I want you to try to go about influencing the world. See, the problem is Christians tend to think the same way all the time. You know this. Christians are very often thinking, you know what, if we could just get the right people in the right place, if we could just get the right people in office, if we can just get enough, uh, the majority of the voters, and advance the right legislation, Then we control, uh, if we can get enough wealth, there's another one, then we can uh, control um, the world because we can control our lives and we can control our future and we can control everything. And Jesus says, no, that's not how I want you to, not so with you. Not so with you. really any attempt to control other people by way of force and by way of coercion, just like the rest of the world does, it doesn't change anybody's heart. In fact, it tends to drive people away from certain things. Jesus says, I want you to love God above all things and then love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, when you humbly serve others, then they'll listen. Then they might ask your opinion then they might see the beauty of your life and be influenced by that. Any other form of, of influence is a forced influence and it doesn't do anything but hurt people's hearts. By the way, my historical example of this is always, uh, if you want to look for an exa- a good example, Europe in the Middle Ages, the one spot in history where we have a very clear example of a forced kind of Christianity. And to me, it's not coincidental that half a millennia later, you find it be the place that Christianity is declining Uh, the fastest seemingly around the world. Jesus says, influence others. How? Not by taking on power, but by giving up your power. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that, by the way. You notice that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of all creation. So he has dominion over everything, but you notice that he never lords his power. The great irony is that the Lord of all creation never actually lords his power. He never says, okay, pull out your sword. Let's take care of this. He says, put away your sword. He's never trying to rally voters. I mean, you think it through. What did Jesus actually do for his enemies? He died for them. He died for their sins. He gladly died for their sins and for our sins. And he prayed that the very people who were torturing him at that moment would be forgiven by their heavenly father. It's it's really unbelievable when you think about it. Uh, not coincidentally, then, who's the most influential person in all of human history? And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian answering this. If you're answering it with any kind of intellectual honesty, you'd have to say, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the only thing he does when he's here is he doesn't assert his power. He gives up his power. Uh, One of, you you know, I often quote uh, Keller on this. He's very accustomed to saying, at the very heart of a Christian's worldview is a man dying for his enemies. That is unlike any other triumphalistic worldview. At the very heart of the Christian worldview is a man who is dying for his enemies. And if you and I have that exact same, this spirit of that same man inside of us, then the only way we will ever gain any kind of social influence that actually advances God's kingdom, that actually advances God's kingdom is not going to be through control or force or manipulation. You know what it's going to look like? It's gonna look like humble service to one another and humble service and love even to our enemies, okay? The cross brings uh, intellectual humility, a humility of power, and finally, the cross also brings a humble joy. Uh, you know, one of the most fascinating things to me all the time is whenever the secular world sort of catches up with the Bible when it comes to, uh, especially like secular, the secular counseling world catches up with what the Bible is saying on a given topic. Um, and so, for instance, uh, what the secular world is, the, the best experts right now are saying about happiness and joy and contentment and what's the secret. And this goes all the way back to the philosophers of the ancient world. Everybody wanted to know what's the secret to happiness, Right. Uh, So you look at what the secular experts are saying today. So, uh, just a couple quick examples. Uh, There's a a documentary on Netflix that I watched a while back called Happy. It's just called Happy. And uh, these researchers, they basically like traverse the whole planet and and interview, you know, and and examine different cultures and different, uh, you know, different economic levels, different uh, ethnicities, different education levels. And they try to figure out what is the secret to happiness in life. You know what the conclusion after about an hour and 40 minutes that they come to is? Compassion. Caring for others ahead of yourself. Thinking about other people before you think about yourself. And then they spend the last 20 minutes of the documentary or so trying to figure out how on earth are we going to motivate people to think of other people ahead of themselves? Um... Somebody sent me an article not that long ago uh, because, so I I used to be in Rochester, Minnesota and had a lot of um, members who were, who worked at Mayo Clinic. And uh, they had a colleague who was interviewed for an article in The Atlantic. And uh, his name was Dr. Amit Sood. And the the article was actually about happiness, joy, and contentment. And uh, they asked him, what do you think, you know, long and short of it, what do you think the secret is? And he goes on to say, uh, well, you have to be able to control your cognitive energy by which he meant positive thought, and what Dr. Sood's five key principles, you tell me if these sound familiar. Dr. Sood's five key principles are gratitude, compassion, acceptance, meaning, and forgiveness. I'm not trying to knock Dr. Sood, but I'm pretty sure he didn't come up with the concepts. Gratitude, compassion, acceptance, meaning, and forgiveness. I'm pretty sure somebody's been telling us These exact things are these these secrets to who we are as people for a very, very long time. I think he's unwittingly just borrowing these things from Jesus. And so what Dr. Suit is saying and what that documentary is saying, what every other piece of literature that I've found in recent history on uh, modern history on on happiness and joy and contentment is what? How do you find it? Well, love and serve others. Around here at St. Marcus, we kind of are in the habit of saying God first, others second, and I am Third, but here's the catch. If you say, I'm very unhappy, so I want to be happy, so I'm going to serve other people in order to get happy, it doesn't work. You know why? If you serve other people so that you will become more happy, who are you really serving other people for? Yourself. It's entirely counterintuitive. In fact, my confirmation students, just—they all three sections got this this past week. I showed them an example of a woman who was giving somebody, a homeless man on the street, some money so that she would feel better about herself. And the lesson was on good works. I said, is that really a good work? And they all correctly answered, no. Why? Because she's not giving it for the homeless man. She's giving it for herself. So how on earth, if even doing the right thing, but with the wrong motives isn't going to make us happy, joyful, or contented. How do we find happiness? I'll tell you what, the secret to it all is obviously the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, if he is, in fact, my selfless, substitutionary sacrifice, if he has, in fact, eliminated every bad thing that I've ever done, and unwound every mistake and every knot that I've ever tied in my entire life. If he has gifted to me all of the righteousness that he earned so that my future is secure so that when God looks at me, the only opinion that really matters in the cosmos, uh, the creator of the entire universe, the one that truly gets to judge me in the end, says, I love you, I accept you, and I receive you into my arms and into my family for all eternity. If he has done that for me, then, man, my insecure little heart has nothing to worry about anymore. And now I don't have to do good works to try to feel better about myself because I already feel great about myself because the only opinion that matters loves me dearly. Now I do good works because I just kind of want to emulate the one who lived for me because sometimes when somebody else delights you so much, you do crazy things for them, not because you even understand it, but just because you like to delight them. What's, this is the whole theory of buying flowers for somebody. I challenge you to find me a guy who can explain what the, what the practical value of buying flowers for women is. Uh, I'm 35 plus years and I have not figured this out, like even close, and yet you do it. Why would you do it? If it delights somebody else, that's like your whole mission. Um... What does this look like in your life? Decisions, decisions that you make for the glory of God and, and the, the service of others ahead of self. It's very hard. We all have something like this that we struggle with. In fact, I would suggest to you, I've, I've been pretty open with you guys about my history with anxiety and depression and the times in my life where I've struggled the most with this have been the times where I've been absolutely most focused on myself. Without fail. Uh, Like, I know how deep and dark things like depression are but I also, coming out on the other side of it, I also know how much self-focus there is attached to it. Um, Let me give you one example in recent history of this where I knew, it it took me a while and it was very painful but I knew, it was not exactly recent history, the last time I went through what I'd say is kind of a, you know, depressive episode was about maybe four years ago, four or five years ago. And uh, I actually got, some of you know, uh, I do this online blogging thing. And uh, I, was, I was doing it a little more before I came to St. Marcus and haven't had as much time. But I was doing it and, and had developed a little bit of like a following for it. And I got, I actually got contacted. This is, it's crazy. It's still crazy to me to think about it and it was hard for me to talk about it for a long time. But I got contacted by a talent agency out in L.A. And uh, they wanted to interview me for uh, a program that they were doing which they ended up filming, it's, I can't even remember what the name of it is. It's either called Love at First Sight or Married at First Sight or something like that. It's on a cable, cable station or something like that. And I'm really glad it didn't work out because it would have been an absolute disaster. But they were looking, they were looking for four people that they considered experts, uh, relationship experts, and they wanted one of those experts to be a spiritual guide. Like you can tell this is already kind of ambiguous and dangerous. But they, they read through some of the stuff that I had written. They said, we like your stuff. Uh, can, you, can you interview for this? And I said, well, you know, what is it? And they didn't even know, forming it at the time, uh, four years ago, they didn't know what the program was going to be. So I said, all right, I'll do it. And so I went through. What ended up being, uh, I, I went one interview, it was an hour long, it was a Skype interview, it went great. It was really, it was really went a lot easier than I thought it was. Uh, they said, can you do another interview? I did another interview. Uh, they said, can you do another interview after that? I did another interview after that. Uh, and it was these, these series of interviews and at some point in time along the way, it became very increasingly clear to me that they weren't looking for a pastor, they were looking for a vague, nebulous, spiritual guide. And you know, along the way, I kind of rationalized to myself that, you know, maybe they'll give me the platform to talk about Jesus Christ and and uh, talk about grace and forgiveness and and those kinds of things and it became very clear uh, after like the second interview that that wasn't the case and to this day I'm not even sure why I agreed to do the third one actually I kind of do know because at some point in time along the way I came to realize was I really doing this to the glory of God was I really doing this to even serve anybody else and the answer was no why was I doing that it was total pride And it was making me nervous and anxious and miserable. And by the time that I actually, they they got to the point after the third interview where they said, you're a little too Christian for us. I said, yep, that's, I'll take it. Uh, I'm glad that you got that after three hours of talking to me. Um, But it it got to the point, um, I was so sad. I was, and I'm I'm honestly very uh, embarrassed and ashamed to even like admit that I cared about it. And then uh, I was about six months later after they had done the filming out in New York and I was listening to Spotify one day and I heard an ad for it come on uh, that the show was debuting the next week. And I was an absolute wreck for the rest of the day. I couldn't do anything. And it makes me so sick uh, to think that I was so concerned about advancing my cause because in the grand scheme of God first, other second, me third, I was living very clearly out of me first. And it makes me miserable. And I've come to find again and again and again and God has had to humble me and show me this throughout my life and it's been the most painful things that I've ever gone through but whenever I'm entirely focused on myself, I crumble. And if you're crumbling at all right now, what I'm asking you is, is it possible that you're focused on yourself? And I don't mean that in an accusatory way, I mean that in I want you to be liberated from that sort of way because I've had to repent over my own pride perhaps more than anything else in my life. Uh, You have to let go of yourself. You have to lose yourself in order to be filled with Christ. You have to empty yourself in order to be filled with him. And that's an enormously painful lesson, but when you do that, when you actually get into that order of God first, others second, me third, oh my goodness, the liberation and the joy that comes out of that. There's something in your life right now, I guarantee, that Satan is trying to shove ahead of God or others. And he's trying to, really, essentially what he's trying to do is he's trying to get number three there up to the top of the totem pole. And what he's doing is trying to make you miserable. Don't fall for that. Look to the cross. The cross is the only thing that can cure you of yourself. Um, Jesus alone is what will fuel humility and will fuel a desire to serve other people because he's, he's the only one in human history who is truly, completely selfless and yet he substituted himself. He substituted himself on the cross for our sins so that we who throughout our lives have struggled with being so incredibly selfish, it's taken care of. We still get to sit forever in glory. The Apostle Paul puts that like this, by the way. He says in Philippians 2, "...and being found in appearance as a man, God humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name." Greatness comes not in going up, but by voluntarily going down. Greatness comes not in bringing things into your life and pushing people underneath you. It comes in pouring yourself out. Greatness in God's kingdom does not come in being served, but in serving. At the heart, at the very heart of all life-changing love is a substitutionary sacrifice giving yourself up for another. And Jesus, God himself, placed himself so low, it was as literally as low as hell. But that's why he's the best. And that's why he will, has earned our unending praise forever. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, today we repent of ourselves. Um, lots of people, even non-Christians, repent of the bad things that they've done. So far as I can tell, your children, uh, your Christian children are the only ones who actually repent of themselves. Forgive us for being so caught up in us. Forgive us, sometimes as a church, for being so caught up in us. Forgive us as individuals for being so enamored and, and worried about us. Jesus. You have taken care of us. You've given us eternal, eternal glory. If you've done that for us, how will God not also along with you give us all things? You've taken care of us. Let us stop thinking and worrying about ourselves and let us be committed to glorifying you by serving others humbly. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.